Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. Poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. You're listening to The Wobbly Road on Transmission Roundhouse. I'm your host, Tatum Swithenbank. When I became disabled at age 18, I experienced years of limbo before getting a diagnosis, and the road continues to change and challenge. On each episode, I'll be chatting to guests about their off-kilter moments and how they've endured, adapted, and flourished. This episode, I chat to a close friend of mine, Phoebe Montague, This is the only episode I recorded during lockdown, so the sound may be a little different. Phoebe is the founder of 100 Women I Know and works within the violence against women and girls sector. In this episode, Phoebe opens up about some of her own experiences of sexual violence. So please, wherever you listen to this, hold the space safely with compassion and care. Content warning, we discuss rape and various forms of sexual violence. It's funny, the other day I pulled a card and it was the hermit. I pulled like archetypal cards and I got the hermit and I was like, well, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) And it's quite nice, yeah, to be recording in the comfort of my home where I feel quite able to speak, I suppose. Do you want to just intro who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. I think it's just a funny one when you're trying to think about what to say about yourself. I am a survivor. That feels quite important to say from the get-go of this conversation because, you know, I think we're going to speak about what, what being a survivor is and what it looks like for different people. And, yeah, that's something that feels quite important to mention. And um, I'm also the founder of our community project called 100 Women I Know. Um, that's actually how we met. Yes. <laughs> um, and then I'm also a frontline worker and I work in the Vogue sector which is violence against women and girls sector. As part of that we also support people of all genders who experience sexual violence. The beautiful thing that you do is you don't force people to talk about their trauma and they don't have to talk about their experiences for you to accept them as a survivor. They can join that space. Some people, yes, they like to share and some people, they just turn up and they do the workshops and they have normal conversations that has nothing to do with being a survivor. But it's having that space where it allows people to be able to join in on this really important work without having to dive in all the time to things that are painful. So well done, basically. It's incredible. But I think like that is just testament to survivors and like the way that survivors deal with and cope with 
the daily reality of being a survivor you know so like some people want the opportunity to to share and speak and some people have never found space to do that before and so coming together to do that feels massive whereas other people literally just being in a space and knowing within their heart and their gut that they are safe and surrounded by people who understand whether or not they have ever voiced what's happened to them, wrote it down, uh, given it a, a name or terminology. It's a powerful thing to just be in a space where you can feel held without having to disclose. And I think it's important to add also that like nobody owes their story to anybody else. And I think that, you know, sometimes we can get into a health, unhealthy position within society where when people come out with a story many years after it's happened people say why didn't you speak up or you know you allowed this abuse to happen to you or whatever it is and actually it's like a lot of people don't come to realizations until years later and other people come to a realization in the very moment that it happens but it doesn't mean that they feel able and feel comfortable to share after something happens sometimes people just have to hold on to it and that's their only sense of self-preservation that Mm. or their only option that they have sometimes I mean talking from my own experience I had to have enough space from it to then be able to confront it there's a lot of layers you don't know there's different types of violence and your responses to that they're all valid responses and it's so problematic to say oh why are you coming out now to women because once again you're putting the blame and shame on them when actually why are we not addressing the perpetrators exactly and it and it becomes that you know it's the women's responsibility to speak out and to create this change rather than it being men's responsibility in society to call out their male friends who they know have perpetrated or to support and inherently believe survivors regardless of their relationship to them we hear a lot of men saying oh if that was my daughter or my mum or my sister or you know I would kill a man if they'd done anything to my loved one but then when it's a woman that the man doesn't know often the story or the narrative is just non-existent and and it's more so about let's uphold these men and their reputation and we don't want to falsely accuse because you know there's so many crazy women out there who Mm. want to spread all of these lies and tarnish these characters we're constantly telling women how to avoid being harassed rather than teaching men to respect women Mm. and treat them like human beings In recent years, there's been more accessible conversation about neurodiversity. I know you've discovered some new things recently. Can you share some of that that you've found out about yourself? I think for me, I've kind of come to realise that for all that my brain sometimes lets me down and sometimes I feel frustrated with myself and my inability to do things that other people can or, you know, the way that my brain is wired slightly differently and kind of the way that I think sometimes is different I've also learned to understand what works well for me 
um, and like the benefits of being neurodiverse, I suppose. And Pip from The Dots is this woman who I I uh, heard spoke. And I think from that moment, I was like, wow, I kind of viewed um, being neurodiverse differently. And she spoke about like how as people who are dyslexic or dyspraxic or who have different learning difficulties, often we have this like greater sense of empathy um, than your average person. And part of that is to do with you know, well, they don't know the exact reasons, but part of it, I think, is to do with us knowing that we are different from the get-go, from education, from being a child with siblings and noticing our differences and kind of then, I suppose, wanting to support people who also have differences. So, yeah, I think I've sort of tried to learn or tried to accept some of my differences and learn to accept myself really but it's been it's been a lot because I've started a new job recently and I think I've been really confronted with how different I am and how I can't keep up with my colleagues and I started with two other colleagues at the same time and from the get-go I noticed that I was slower and um, that's quite a difficult thing to deal with I think going into a new job and workplace but with that I've been able to also offer some different perspectives into the accessibility of the service for survivors who might have learning difficulties or disabilities and I think knowing you as well has also throughout the year or so that we've been friends my understanding and insight I suppose into people who are disabled or who have learning difficulties has really broadened and I think yeah I've learned to kind of be more mindful of privilege and you know how that plays out and really that when we speak about diversity and inclusion it has to include also people who are neurodiverse or physically different or disabled also. As much as I said things are becoming more accessible I think people with learning difficulties or disabilities or different abilities they're always like left out of the conversation or they're not centered in the decisions that are made so the fact that you've been able to direct some of that and make sure that you are being aware of those things and inclusive is really important because actually I think that that's quite hard to find. Do you think that being dyslexic and dyspraxic has held you back in the past? I think for a lot of people who have uh, different learning difficulties, they often suffer with low self-esteem. And I think suffering with low self-esteem often goes hand in hand with being empathetic, right? Because if you have yep. low self-esteem, <laughs> you feel we feel it for people who also have low self-esteem or who are struggling through different things and you know what it feels like to feel low so you can then offer support to others who also might be going through things. Because you've recently been able to have a label for it, what are your feelings about actually knowing that you have those things and how mm. you then use that knowledge to ask for what you need basically? Getting a job like and being employed and on a salary is like something that for a long time I just didn't think was a possibility for me and I've had many jobs over um you know in my my life but they've always been kind of odd jobs and like random kind of jobs that I don't really want to be doing but 
it's a bit of money and you know hospitality and I respect people in the hospitality industry but it's not ever kind of where I wanted to be just knowing that I can have some in quotes success for me is massive because I I've never really believed that I'm I'd be able to get a job um and I think that's partly why I decided to keep going with my project because I didn't see myself being employed by anyone I didn't believe that anyone would want to employ me so I thought let me try and do something for myself and just kind of kept going with that because I didn't see an option of applying for the job I just didn't I just wouldn't and And you're so good at your job and I think that's the problem straight away in school with people with different learning difficulties because they're not fitting into that one box of the way that the majority of people are learning you have to adapt around it and you're having to do all this extra work on top of being a child or being a teenager in school where you know other students they seem to pick things up that actually you're like I would pick this up if it was taught in a different way so you're having to work around things all the time and it's just so sad that for so long you felt like you couldn't be in those spaces or do a job like that when it wasn't that you couldn't do it you just needed someone somebody to adapt things a little bit for you and like it's good that now you're being able to claim that and realize that yeah you know what you can work but you're just gonna have to do things a bit differently which is fine it's mm. it's actually it's a great and a beautiful thing isn't it really yeah and I think what's been like really affirming for me recently is having started a new job in March and then going into lockdown three weeks later and having to learn my new job from my bedroom I I've had to reach out for the help and I've had to be honest and say I don't think this is working for me or you know I need to look at the way that the systems are working because they're not really computing with my brain and like having to own that and reach out for help has been really quite a struggle but it's also been good to see and to realize that actually from the the charity that I work for that they are prepared to make those changes and that they've validated me in my needs because I think often people who have different abilities they don't want to ask for what they need because they don't want to other themselves or take up more space or um or lose their job literally like people don't say what they need because they're so worried that then they're too difficult to work with which is absolutely appalling and I think a lot of people don't actually know what your rights are Mm. when you've got different learning difficulties or disabilities with your new job because you've got so many different survivors calling up has it highlighted to you how many different experiences there are and the diversity of people's experiences of violence Mm, definitely I think for me like because I've taken in and consumed and um, read so many stories over the last few years working on 100 women I know um, I, I do believe that kind of my view of sexual violence had been somewhat like quite narrow so like I think because all of the stories that I collected were from 
young women specifically and women that I knew and were in my social circle. I can kind of hold my hands up and say that with 100 women I know, um, in terms of the stories that were featured in the book and the film, they were limited to the people that I know. Since then, the book was released in 2018, right? So like in those past few years and now in my job as well, I'm really starting to understand and become more aware of all of the different ways that sexual violence can happen and also the stories that reach their moment in the spotlight if you want like if we're thinking about me too right a lot of the stories that got their film or were featured in the media or got their moment a lot of those stories were from privileged white women and they weren't the stories that largely make up sexual violence throughout the world and and even if we're thinking about throughout the UK the stories that I hear in my job day to day they're not all the same they're so varied it can be quite confronting to every day hear more stories and new stories and how similar the stories are in a lot of ways and how trauma responses can be quite similar for a lot of survivors like I speak to survivors day in and day out and they say the same things to me about the way that their symptoms present but then also seeing the diversity and I think it's really important that with our project moving forward we look at those stories that often don't get publicised or written about or explored so much because we know that sexual violence is happening amongst young people, but we don't often think about women in their 60s or 80s experiencing sexual violence and all of the kind of stories that are less maybe palatable for readers that don't get their time in the media. Stories about modern slavery and stories about women who are forced into prostitution and stories about all different sorts of things. There's a lot going on that has never been so widely shared and spoke about, and maybe people don't want to share their stories, and that's okay. But I do think it's important that we acknowledge all the different ways that sexual violence can happen, really. Yeah, and also I think that a lot of people don't even know what comes under sexual violence, especially Mm. in regards to rape. There's different types of rape. You can be raped by the mouth. There's something called stealthing that is taking a condom off without the consent of the person you're having sex with. There's all these different things. We only see a certain amount of stories in the media that then we don't realise that actually we've also experienced sexual violence I mean I'm saying we but I mean there's a lot of people who won't know that the things that they've gone through is actually violence against them when was your first understanding of consent do you Mm. think you knew that in your teenage years or do you think that it wasn't until you were doing work with 100 women I know that you really understood it I don't think I even knew what the word consent meant I thought that you had sex and you should enjoy it and it might hurt the first time but basically it's just is what it is and that's just part of a normal cycle of growing up 
no one ever empowered me or told me that I had the right to say no or that consent was something that I could, should or could be active and play a part in. It just kind of felt like sex was a given and sex is just something that you should be doing as a teenager. That's That was my perspective and my reality anyway. There, there was no conversation. It was just like, oh, this is just how it is. And just being a woman is really painful in every sense, you know? And you don't realise that actually that's not normal. Mm. And I think what's really interesting is you enter this time of sexuality in your life. You kind of enter this as a as a teenager. You know, we are sexual beings. and But on one hand... It's kind of the norm for young people to be having sex and to be like exploring their sexuality. Um, but on the other hand, it's very shameful for women and especially young girls to be engaging in sexuality or or being sexual or owning their sexuality or experimenting with what it means as your body changes and you know how you want to present yourself there's so much shame surrounding womanhood and growing into a woman that from one perspective we're being told that we should stay as young girls and then on the other perspective we're being told that we should be sexual maybe from our partners and our peers but then we're also shamed for that so we can't win like, you're just yeah. stuck in this unknowing yeah. sense of like what am I supposed to do and then men are celebrated for being sexual for having different experiences but then women are shamed and called I mean there's nothing actually wrong with the word slut now I think it's really great that people are reclaiming that word when people would use the word slut it would really shame a woman and then if you didn't want to do something then you were called frigid and it's like it's you just go through hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The, the early years when you are transitioning into womanhood, with constant fear and anxiety no matter what decision you make mm, that's so true and I think I just want to touch on like you saying about people reclaiming the word slut like for me I understand why people do that and I think like more power to you if that feels empowering but then I also hear people saying like oh yeah I've just been hoeing around and and then I'm like can we just like break this down a little bit because by you saying I'm hoeing around or you know like um reclaiming this word 
you're still essentially saying that this is something you shouldn't be doing that sexuality isn't normal and that because you enjoy having sex with different people or whatever people define hoeing around to be I'm not sure I think it's different Mm. for different people that there's that that's something that that's like different and that you shouldn't be doing and I just think like for me that word is a massive trigger like when I hear people say that I just think people should be able to be free why is there a label to you Mm. having sex like you say someone being like oh I'm hoeing around well you're just having sex Mm. so it's an interesting thing that we're still having to label it like you say like everyone each their own you do you but sometimes we can think that we are reclaiming something or empowering ourselves but actually we have to really examine whether we are still playing into things that perpetuate patriarchy patriarchy, yeah yeah. and also like we have to really examine whether we are actually doing something for empowerment or whether we are still feeding into that thing of being loved and desired and stuff like that now at this point in your life are there experiences that you look back on that challenge you or make you feel uncomfortable Mm. the reason that I find the word slut uncomfortable or like all of those names is because like there was a period in my life where that's kind of what I believed about myself and that's what I was told about myself by like multiple people and so I think for me when people say, and it's often like bounced around, you know, when I went through my hoe phase, when I was like 14, 15, and I think when people say that, like often what they're referring to is being, in my opinion anyway, and from my perspective, being young, kind of lost young women, um, searching for people to show them some affection and love and care. We know that women often get their validation from men because that's patriarchy, that's the system we're living in. I think that for a lot of people who experience sexual violence in their teenage years, it's often can like set off a whole stream of other experiences of sexual violence because you might experience one incident that then crushes any self-confidence or self-esteem that you have and any kind of sense of self that you then will, for me, I don't want to keep saying you, let's take it back to me, right? For me personally, I think that by experiencing coercion and pressure and different forms of sexual violence I then engaged in lots of risky sexual behavior because I didn't have any self-worth and I didn't have any kind of boundaries because I didn't know what what you should be doing as a teenager to be honest I didn't know what was acceptable or what wasn't acceptable I just got into a cycle of accepting whatever because I didn't believe that I deserved better. At the same time, I think part of me constantly looked or believed that somebody would treat me better than the last. And to be honest, it it didn't really pan out like that. It, It kind of felt like a lot of boys and older men preying on my vulnerabilities and my 
lack of self-esteem, which let's be honest, when you're a 14 year old girl with an older man, not a, not even a boy, a man, you know that that child like isn't really gonna necessarily have the confidence and the ability to say no. Obviously now coming from a consent informed perspective is like you don't even have the, con the capacity to consent when you're under 16. I don't think that children have capacity to really state their needs or their desires or their wants. I think one of the things that sticks out to me is that when survivors of sexual violence experience sexual violence, they often end up feeling a sense of numbness. And I think that with perspective that I have now, I can see that with this sense of numbness that I was feeling from the experiences, I would then want to feel something again and seek to feel something. And it's like, how can someone just disregard your wants and needs and desires and, and respect your humanity and decision and right to make a decision? And with that, because you feel so violated, you think surely other people wouldn't do that to me again. <laughs> a big issue is that rape is so stigmatised um, and so we, when we think of the words rape, our mind instinctively goes to a woman being dragged into a dark alleyway and raped by a stranger. And that reality does happen. I witnessed that in my work and we hear stories about that from friends and loved ones. But 80% or where thereabouts, 80% of rape and sexual violence does happen within the home and within partnerships or relationships that are already formed. See, when you're a teenager, maybe that doesn't always happen within the home, but it, it often does happen with people that you know. Because we have this massive stigma of rape having to be this violent act that happens so unexpectedly and the result being a woman sitting telling her story behind a silhouetted screen or the other rape that we see is in like thrillers and, and dramas where it's so big that we often like miss the subtleties of how sexual violence plays out and we often don't see coercion so much as a valid form or a valid experience and we minimize coercion and we think that you know when we're thinking about kind of storylines like Disney for instance and we're thinking about like it's always the prince trying to seek the princess and it's always even not Disney moving into like other films it's always the storyline is always the woman's not interested and the man tries to claim her and tries to convince her that they should be together or that they should have sex or whatever it may be and 
that coercion then is normalised yeah. and even celebrated mm. like the amount of films that uh, used to be my favourite films I've watched in the last three years and I'm like well everything's ruined then like it's just in the majority of things and it's like oh god this is a big issue mm. yeah and that sense of like coercion just being normal and being part of a teenage experience then leads and, and an adult experience but it then leads people to believe that their experience doesn't fall under rape or sexual violence. And I think we don't all have to use that terminology. Some people don't feel comfortable using that, and that's absolutely fine. But I do feel like, as a society, we need to broaden our understanding of what rape is and what rape can be and what sexual assault can be and what sexual violence can be. Like, sexual violence is on a continuum, right, of all these different experiences, and it's it's a broad term that kind of includes everything. But I think when we're thinking about rape, we often don't want to use it unless the experience feels like it's reached a certain level of life-changing violence. And actually, the more subtle experiences, people often are just told to brush off or to forget or to move on from yeah which sometimes because you're internalizing it so much actually in the long term it can be incredibly damaging all those things that we experience as as women they all add up as well these aren't just one-time things like we experience different forms of harassment throughout our entire lives we experience different forms of violence throughout our lives so much so that it is normalized and that we find it difficult to put a label onto what we've experienced even I for a long time would never have identified my experiences to be rape or sexual violence or anything with such a stigmatised word attached to it. One of my kind of, I suppose, first real experiences that I think has been so life-changing was actually an experience that didn't involve, like, penis and vagina. Penetration. Penetration. Um, My experience was actually surrounding oral sex and oral rape. And I think... From my perspective, at the time, I didn't really understand the complexities and seriousness of the situation that I was in. Essentially, I was with a group of um, like teenagers, a few years older than me, and coerced to like um, perform uh, oral sex to like multiple people. I was filmed and. A video was passed around of me to countless people. I don't even know how many, like, it could be thousands of people who saw it. I don't know. It could still exist somewhere on some site. Knowing that so many people can see something that's such a violation of you um, is so affecting. Like, I can't tell you how much it's affected my confidence and my sense of self and no one knowing the context or the situation or my mental state or what led me to do that or or everything that that played out in the way that it did at that time in my life it's just a lot to know that people can have seen that of you and 
then make these judgments against you. At that time in my life, everything was affected for me. Like I couldn't go to school. I couldn't be in my local area without being paranoid about who had seen that or made judgments about me or I couldn't be in school without people asking me or bullying me without my friends feeling uncomfortable because what are people going to think about them if they're friends with that girl who's on that video and I think like even it boils down to my brother being in the school next door and him getting that image of his little sister and the effect that that then had on him and his social circle and it just runs deep and it's not something that I will really let go of I don't think. It's important to be mindful that in this generation, this for the younger generations who do have such access to phones because bearing in mind when this happened like we just started using camera phones, you know? This wasn't a common thing. Nowadays, it's so much more common and it's scary because people don't think of the ramifications of using tech and revenge porn and how often this happens. It's a really difficult thing to talk about and you're incredibly brave to be able to talk about that because I think people will have had that experience, but not that people should speak about it, but it can, it'll make a lot of people feel less alone in that experience. Someone said to me the other day something about the concept of the wounded healer, and I was like, wow, that really resonates. And it's basically the kind of, I don't want to like mess up the exact kind of. Um, sure, but just the, the feel of it, yeah. But yeah, the, the feel of it is that the wounded healer is about kind of people who have experienced trauma then offering their sense of empathy and their sense of understanding and knowing to other people as a way to heal mm. and I think that I really resonate with that because yeah it gives me purpose to support other people and I think we heal through offering healing to others and that's kind of quite poignant for me as survivors will give so much because we know how it feels to go through that but also I think something that we have to learn is to have more boundaries because we give a lot and then that is I, I love that wounded healer because it's like through healing other people you can heal part of your wound but also you have to do it by resting and doing your own healing as well don't you mm, yeah absolutely and I think like for me I you know you know me pers on a personal level um, and on a friendship level like I do neglect my self-care and I don't necessarily always do the things that are gonna be best for my well-being and I think you know with this project with 100 women I know I've always pushed myself and not really known how to boundary myself and I think that's something that I'm learning that we all if we're going to be able to give to other people whether that's our friends our colleagues the people we work with in our jobs whatever we can't pour from an empty cup right so if we're trying to do that it's never going to work you're what you're able to give is going to be a tiny percentage of what you could if you were looking after yourself. And so I think that's something that I'm trying to be better at. Is It's a process. Yeah. It takes time, yeah. doesn't it?
My last question is, if you could bottle a feeling or an emotion and open it at any time, what would it be? I have been gone back and forth with this one, but I think it would be like a feeling of safety and comfort. Safety is not an emotion, right? But I think it's a feeling that, especially as a survivor, you know so well and it's a feeling that you're hyper aware of when you do feel safe and comforted and warm and held by other people that would be something that I would like to return to. I think the survivor's experience is often one of being on overdrive of being scared and fearful and not always knowing why you feel like that or not always being aware of your triggers and what's going on for you and why you're feeling so unsettled and so unsafe. Um, so I think to be able to have a bottle to open up of safety and warmth and comfort would be quite amazing. I think that's such a beautiful one. Like I've not thought about that, but it's so true as survivors, we're on fight and flight, fight or flight mode all the time. Our adrenal glands are on all the time. We have massive crashes of energy and emotion because we are constantly well not constantly but we are very much on edge in many areas of our lives or if we're accessing various spaces so that feeling of safety I think is such a powerful one because sometimes we are safe but we don't know how to feel safe i think hopefully other survivors listening would be able to relate to that we're all on a healing journey right and we can find moments of safety and i also think like in a real life reality like it's about trying to identify what makes you feel safe and who makes you feel safe and um, honouring your needs. And that's something that I think for me is my self-care. So as much as we can think about what would be an ideal bottle, like we can bring that into our lives as well by honouring ourselves. Um, yeah, so yeah, safety in it. <laughs> Moving forward with our community project, we'd like to collect more diverse stories of sexual violence from people we know and from people we haven't met yet. Connect with us on Instagram at 100womenIKnow and on our website 100womenIKnow.com. Let us know if you would like to share your story. Thank you for joining The Wobbly Road. I'm your host and producer, Tatum Swithenbank. A huge thanks to my co-producer, Bridie Addison-Child. We are powered by Transmission Roundhouse, music by James Christie. Catch you next time. Are we rolling? Are we rolling? <laughs> rolling up. <laughs> rolling. Rolling. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey there, Richmond. 2021 is here and we've got a lot to do, so it's time to find the right coffee for you. Let's get it done with new coffee choices at Dunkin'. Try the new Explorer Batch, a globally sourced blend with smoky, dark berry notes that's an adventure in every sip. Or grab a cup of Dunkin' Midnight, a richer, intensely dark roast with hints of chocolate, because bold days start with midnight. And sip into action with new extra-charged coffee that's 20% extra caffeine from green coffee extract. So head to Dunkin' or order ahead on the app for the brew that's right for you, and let's get it done. America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary limited time offer for the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase it's a culture and the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe for the safety minded who watch everyone's backs granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer call click granger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.